So, this is the uh, beginning of a three-week series on called The Breath as a Gateway, and it's about uh, mindfulness of breathing as a practice, and also the, uh, the teaching, the written teaching in the suttas that describes that practice. So, um, I know some of you have done some of the sutta study before, and some of you haven't, and that's totally fine. I just wanted to point out for those who have done it before that this will um, be a little bit more, it, it will include more practice than some of the other ones that have um, been more focused on the study. Both are very valuable, but that just, I think that makes sense when we're just focusing on this one practice-based sutta. Um, let's start with everybody saying their name. That would be nice. We'll start over here. Kirsten. <clears throat> I couldn't hear that. I'm Kirsten. I'm Kavita. Inani. Heidi. Am. Prakiba. Mickey. Maggie. Jim. Okay. I know most of you, but I wasn't sure if everyone knew everyone else, and there won't be a test. It's okay. Um, but I do want to also just ask some questions so I have a sense of where we're at. Um, how many folks have done breath meditation before? in some form. Okay, nearly everyone, basically everyone. Um, How many have done it for more than a year of your practice? How about more than five years of your practice? Some. Okay. Okay, so it's been significant for all of you, it seems. Um, How many of you, it's the main practice right now that you're doing? Okay, half. Great. Okay, so um, I wanted to ask then if anybody had any comments uh, about the sit. You know, how, like those two reflection questions that I asked about the quality of attention and the feeling of the breath in the body, did that come up with anything that you'd like to share or offer? Uh, The quality of attention came up for me as soon as you said that. I noticed here, and a lot of the times... If the breath is a little sporadic, uh, I tend to want to force it to calm. Uh Um, And through that, there's all kinds going on inside, reactions to that. Um, And that when I ease on the awareness, that that's when the breath calms. Yeah, so kind of the the way you interact with it affects how the breath is, for sure. And yeah, that, yeah, I know... um, there, many people find that there's a tendency to want to control the breath, or the however it is. It doesn't, you know, comes from many different things in our history. But however the breath is, we tend to decide, oh, this isn't the right breath at this moment. <laughs> and <laughs> like, how could it be <laughs> other than it is? But we, um, you know, we do do that. The mind does that. Thank you, Maggie. I came buzzing in here a minute late, and so I was, yeah, running to get over here and. I was kind of breathless when I got here. <laughs> immediately, I'm supposed to sit down and do breath meditation. Sit down and relax. <laughs> yeah. So it took me a little while, but uh-huh. you know, gradually as you sit, it becomes more um, less tight. Yeah. More relaxed, and the attention can rest on it more easily. Mm, but yeah. at first, you know, when it feels like it's really tight, then the t- 
sense to control it is very is stronger. Yeah. So this is interesting, right? I mean, this is um, there's no uh, right or wrong way to breathe. We'll, we'll start with that at the beginning. You know, however <laughs> you were breathing was okay. <laughs> um, and part of it's very interesting that there's a whole practice related to having a, a good relationship with the breath, and then also moving beyond that to use the breath as a, a means of, of tranquilizing in the mind and finding insight. So it's, um, it's great. Let me also ask, um, and this is, you know, you can choose to respond or not, um, why are you here? You know, what is the interest in this program, if anybody would like to share that? And you may not know yet. <laughs> Yeah, I just find it really useful to, to go back to basics. Yeah. And um, breath is very basic. Yeah, yeah. But there's always more to be learned there. For sure. And yeah. sometimes we can uh, I can get kind of sloppy in my practice thinking, you know, well I know how to do that, you know. And <laughs> so it can be good to kind of like oh yeah, you know, have a little remedial course. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Really, it's not remedial, though. I mean, we'll find out in the sutta that the breath can go all the way to our hardship. So yeah. we might all still have some more work to do on that. Yeah. And so mine is a <clears throat> it's a similar answer. It's sort of like what I always do. And then when I saw your class, I said, "Oh, I actually would love to actually know something about." Mm-hmm. Oh, ah, great. Yeah. So there's the practical side, which we will explore because there's always more to explore there. And then there's the study side of reading the sutta and maybe learning a little, you know going through it a little bit more carefully, and that can be helpful in a group also, because sometimes even when we read the sutta, we're like, oh yeah, blah, 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 I read it. But uh, we unpack a little bit more when we go through with other people. Great. Okay. Yeah, I think mine's a little bit different. This has been my main practice for a couple of years now, and I've done reading and looked at a number of interpretations and when I look at this area, there's so many different interpretations and so many different practices that come out of it. So I'm very interested in your, uh, particularly since uh, you've been studying with Gail and so forth. And that's been my principal focus, too. Okay. So, yeah, I guess I've been outed in that I have mostly exposure to this through the way Gail teaches it. However, um, I'll say that it'll probably end up being a mixture. Um, I've done breath meditation as, I did it as my main practice right from the beginning. I would say for, it must be almost 10 years that I did breath practice until it sort of changed into something else, and including one um, three-month retreat where I did nothing but Anapanasati for the three months. And I feel like uh, my understanding has just barely deepened a bit. <laughs> and so... Um, I hope to share some of some of that and also you know, just what I've picked up from. I've also read other authors, and like you, I've seen that there are many different ways to approach this. So I'll, I'll offer what I hope will be useful. And then you know, maybe knowing that, each of you can be also have some confidence that how it, how it is working for you is also going to be fine. Okay, so... Um, so mindfulness of breathing, the Pali word for that is anapanasati, and anapana is like in and out breathing. <laughs> it's kind of poetic also, and sati, of course, means mindfulness. So this is mindfulness of breathing. 
This practice is widely taught, um, you know, even by non-Buddhist meditation teachers. Uh, this is the focusing on the breath is very common. It was certainly already known as a practice in the Buddha's times. He wasn't the first one to teach it, so he was. Um, but he did lay out. He found it important to lay out very specific instructions around it uh, in this sutta that we'll be looking at, as well as some other ones. And he. Um, he connected it with many of his other teachings, as we'll see, we'll unpack in the sutta in particular. So it, it was something that ran kind of as a thread. It could, it could touch into many different things that he taught. So I just put together a list of some qualities and benefits of mindfulness of, of the breath. This is not an official list from the suttas, um, but I've heard versions of it and also added a couple of my own. So... The first is that the breath is always there, nearly always, sort of available, and it's often often easy to feel in that it's one of the largest movements in the body, you know, one of the largest sensations in the body. There are times, of course, where it gets very subtle, and it's not the largest sensation in the body, or where something else gets very strong, like pain, and then you don't feel the breath so much. But in general, it's something that's always there and pretty easy to feel. So makes it a good object. Also, it happens that um, among people who you know, were very familiar with many different meditation practices, it was found that meditation on the breath is good for a lot of different types of mind. So there are practices that are good for some types of mind and practices that are better for other types of minds. And a lot of this is laid out in, it's not so much in the suttas, maybe a little bit, but there is one text called the Vasudhimagga that uh, details, you know, if you have this kind of mind, you should have this kind of meditation object, and then you blah, 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 and it's very analytical about that. And I haven't checked all of that personally, but I guess, these, you know, these were like scientists of the mind who figured all this out, and they claim that the breath is actually good for all types of mind. So that's pretty impressive, meaning the, the people who are angry, the people who are loving, the people who are delusional, the people who are you know, hyperactive, you know, all of those, <laughs> anybody can do the breath. So I think that got my attention. It's like, okay, this is a good object. Um, in a practical sense, the breath is often calming or and peaceful, as a you know, like Maggie described. Especially as we sort of tune into it, there's a sense of ease or flow that goes with it, and then usually the feeling tone is either pleasant or neutral for the breath. So this makes it a nice object. It makes the mind willing to be with it, right? Um, there are However, uh, exceptions to that, I'm not saying this is a quality of the breath, it just happens to be that most people relate to it that way. There are people who have conditioning in their lives, um, such as trauma related to the breath, traumatic breath experiences, where this is not, not true for them, for the breath. So people who have had incidents of drowning or choking, or um, this, we don't have this so much, although some of you may remember this. There was a time when, um, I think it was ether, was it? They would stick a tube down your throat um, uh, for to uh, anesthetize people, and this was traumatic for many people. So there are people, in fact, I worked with somebody, oh, and also people who have asthma. So I worked with someone who had asthma one time, and I'm doing this you know, guided meditation on the breath, and she came up to me afterwards and said, that did not work at all for me. <laughs> um, you know, I don't think of the breath as something calming and, and easeful. So, you know, there were other possibilities for her. But just to be aware, that's partly why I asked, 
how was your attention on the breath? Was there a feeling of any, any other feelings? It's nice to know about that. And, of course, if you have some difficult feelings or emotions associated with breathing, um, that doesn't mean the breath is not a good object for you. Um, this is skipping a little farther ahead, but I've, had, I've done breath meditation for a long time, and I can say that there were periods where the breath was unpleasant for me, and it was evoking uh, anxiety in particular, and that was just how it was to be with the breath at that time. And there have been other times that was easeful, peaceful, etc. So, you know, this is not a property of the breath; it changes. And so, if, you know, even if your object is unpleasant temporarily, it's okay, because <laughs> the mind has to go through; it has to purify things. Another nice thing about the breath is it's a changing object; it's a moving object, and this is actually easier for the mind to stay with than a fixed object. Because our minds are so, especially busy minds, uh, you know, the mind's moving around, and so it's nice to have an object that's moving a little bit also. If you, if you try to give it something that's completely fixed, um, it's very hard to, for an uh, agitated mind to even get close to that. So it's kind of a nice, easeful way in to tranquility. And then finally, and this is you know, kind of leading into how we'll study the breath, is that it's an experience that touches many, many aspects of our body and mind. So it's suitable, it's also suitable for the development of both tranquility and insight, which are the two main branches of uh, development that the mind has to go through in order to gain wisdom and be liberated. But basically the, um, and this is, we'll see this in the Anapanasati Sutta, is that the Buddha explains that the breath can lead all the way to arahantship, and then it develops all the four foundations of mindfulness, which are the body and the mind. So you might say, well, how does the breath relate to the mind? Well, you've already seen it in how your mind relates to the breath. That's certainly an aspect, because while you're focusing on the breath, you can turn your attention to what is the mind that's observing this breath, and then you'll see thoughts, feelings, emotions, all the other foundations. And, you know, it even gets more subtle. The breath itself contains... Um, connects into the mind, because all bodily experiences are processed through the mind, through the mind door. So we're inevitably going to touch into uh, all aspects of ourselves. So that's my advertisement. (laughs) This is a great (laughs) object. (laughs) Are there any um, top-level questions or comments at, at this point, before we go on to looking at the Buddha's instructions? Yeah. I think that another really big uh, benefit of focusing on the breath is that <coughs> by its nature it centers us. Yeah, so it's good for tranquility. Bodies. Yeah. But I mean, it's just that it draws us into our physical center. Oh, I see. So, yeah, we're not scattered, essentially. Yeah. yeah. It, um, it's a means by which we come home. Yeah. Yeah, nice way to say it. Yeah. Okay, so I thought we would start um, actually looking at the main text that is about the mindfulness of breathing. And I know not everybody has a copy, so I have a few. Who needs one? Yeah. Um, could you pass, Nick, could you pass that to Maggie? And here's one for Anne. Thank you. I know sometimes the first class, it's not so easy. Um, we're just looking at the beginning of it. By the way, I, 
if you're feeling like, oh my God, did I miss something? Um, it's that the people who registered and gave me their email, I sent an email ahead of time saying, please read the first two par- two sections of the Anapanasati Sutta. So anybody who didn't give me their email, I'll get it afterwards. But it's not it's not like it's going to be required that you have read it. We're about to go over it. <laughs> so uh, I just do that so that there's at least some foundation for those who are you know who are interested before they come to class. Okay. So, um, the Anapanasati Sutta is in, the, is in this text, the Majjhima Nikaya, um, which has 152 suttas that explore the basics of practice. This was considered to be a manual for um, new, new monastics, essentially, which I guess we all qualify as. <laughs> and it's, it goes over many of the main teachings of the Buddha, sometimes in story form. So it's a really nice book, actually. And this is the 118th Sutta. Um, or discourse in this book. And um, the one that I have, so the, just so you know, there are different translations. This was originally not written in English, and obviously. <laughs> so it was written in Pali. And there are translations from Pali into English. The one that you're holding, if you have a printout, is probably this one by um, Tanisaro Bhikkhu, which is found on Access to Insight. I always link to these in the email when I send them, so you... You don't have to remember that, but it's a site called Access to Insight. Um, uh, the book that I'm holding, the translation is by Bhikkhu Bodhi, or possibly Bhikkhu Nanamoli, who did most of the original. Um, and then Bhikkhu Bodhi fixed, finished it up and published it. Um, so they're slightly different, but that's okay. That's actually, I think, somewhat valuable. So if you're listening, we're going to do a little bit of reading out of this sutta, and so if you're listening to somebody else and the words aren't quite matching, don't get upset. <laughs> You'll see, in fact, that they're, that they're similar. So for those who have... Um, we're not going to read every single thing in the first two sections, but it's basically those ones called... The, the one that doesn't have a title, and then the one called... Um, Mindfulness of in and out breathing, or in the book, it's the introductory section and mindfulness of breathing, the first 22 paragraphs. So let me, I'll just start by summarizing a little bit of the beginning before we get to the reading. So this sutta is set in a place called Savati in the eastern park in the palace of Migara's mother. This is um, a way of uh, situating where they are. And so this was a common place, actually, where the Buddha gave uh, instructions. And it was often where he spent the rains retreat in that area. And so, uh, sure enough, this is um, set. Uh, the beginning of it takes place at the end of the rains retreat, which is a three-month retreat for monastics. And he names these amazing people, if you uh, aren't familiar with them, they may not mean anything to you, but uh, Sariputta and Mogalana, the first two names, are his two main disciples. Um, very, They were fully enlightened at this point. Um, Mahakasapa, Mahakachana, all well-known. Um, Ananda, listed at the end, his, um, his trusty attendant and cousin. So he's basically kind of like um, explaining that this is a very... Uh, esteemed gathering of people. And they all, I mean, it must have been an amazing retreat to sit with all these people. And then he talks about how they've all been instructing 20, 10, 20, 30, or 40 newer people. I think somebody added it all up as to what the language implies. It's over 200 monks must have been there. 
uh, being instructed by all of them. And then interestingly, he says um, in paragraph 4, which I'm not sure how it's listed here. Um, It's the one that starts now on that occasion. So it's a little bit farther down in the printout. Would anybody like to read that one? Now on that occasion or on that occasion? Those of you who haven't done my classes before may not know that I ask people to read. (laughs) It's helpful in suttas. Maggie, thank you. If you would read that paragraph, that would be great. I'll probably mispronounce things, so I'll just say that in advance. Now on that occasion, the Uposata day of the 15th, the full moon night of the white water lily month, the fourth month of the rains, the Blessed One was seated in the open air, surrounded by the community of monks, Surveying the silent community of monks, he addressed them. Okay, next one also. Oh, the next prayer. Okay. Yeah. Monks, this assembly is free from idle chatter, devoid of idle chatter, and is established on pure heartwood. Such is the community of monks, such is this assembly. The sort of assembly that is worthy of gifts, worthy of hospitality, worthy of offerings, worthy of respect, an incomparable field of merit for the world. Such is this community of monks, such is this assembly. The sort of assembly to which a small gift when given becomes great and a great gift greater. Such is this community of monks, such is this assembly. The sort of assembly that is rare to see in the world, such is this community of monks, such is this assembly. The sort of assembly that it would be worth traveling for leagues, taking along provisions in order to see. All right, thank you. I was I was wrong. That was paragraph eight. For those of you who have the book seven and eight, um, I skipped ahead a little bit. So um, essentially, he's praising. You know, he's really praising this group of monks. The slight part of the story that I skipped earlier is that he praised them, saying he was content with their progress. And then he said they would practice for another month. <laughs> he said three months was great, but you guys are doing so well, we're going to practice for another month. <laughs> And so then what Maggie read is what he says at the end of the fourth month, where it's like they've practiced for four months together, and he's really impressed with um, how it says uh, earlier that the various bhikkhus had achieved successive stages of high distinction, or in this case it says um, discerning grand and successive distinctions. So this is high praise. Uh, I highlight this because um, for those who have read the suttas before, this is unusual, actually, that the Buddha offers this kind of very direct um, praise, because potentially it can lead to uh, arrogance or something, or con- you know, contentment with things that aren't the full goal yet. So it's rare that he just opens up and says, wow, this is fantastic. So I, I really like that about the beginning of this sutta. I love where he says, it consists purely of heartwood. Yeah, purely of heartwood. So everyone is really sincere and really connected to moving toward liberation, essentially, or have already been there, um, or have already gotten there, according to the next paragraph. So then he, um, he talks about the qualities of the monks who were there. He says some of them, and we won't go through all these different levels, but he basically talks about there's monks who have achieved each of the stages of awakening. And uh, so there are monks that are completely free and monks that are partially free and monks that are on the path to um, being completely free, etc. 
And then he gets uh, near the end of this introductory section. He talks about what practices have been done during this four-month retreat, right? So let's see. Mm, see if I can find the one in the printout. In this community of monks, there are monks who remain devoted to the development of the four frames of reference, etc. So it's the fourth paragraph up from the second bold section. And in the book, it's paragraph 13. So would somebody like to read from there about what practices they've been doing? Pratibha. In this community of monks, there are monks who remain devoted to the development of of the four frames of reference, the four right exertions, the four bases of power, the five faculties, the five strengths, the seven factors for awakening, the noble eightfold path. Such are the monks in this community of monks. Can we go on? Yeah. In this community of monks, There are monks who remain devoted to the development of goodwill, compassion, appreciation, equanimity, the perception of the foulness of the body, the perception of inconstancy. Such are the monks in this community of monks. And in the last paragraph. In this community of monks, There are monks who remain devoted to the mindfulness of in and out breathing. Okay, we'll stop there, actually. So um, these are the practices that are being done. And there's quite a list, and we don't need to be familiar with all of them, but that that first one that you read about the four... uh, right the four frames of reference, that means the four foundations of mindfulness... Uh, the four right exertions, or the four right efforts. Sometimes Tanjeff uses somewhat unusual language. But that set all the way up to the Eightfold Path, that is actually a, a classic um, set. The, the four, four, five, five, seven, eight, etc. Um, does anybody know what that set is called? Yeah, so that is called the 37 Aids to Awakening. And there's a, there's a book, actually, Tan Jeff wrote a book called The Wings to Awakening, which is about them. Um, but this is a classic set of uh, practices that should be completely mastered in order to fully awaken. And then uh, there are other practices mentioned also, the four Brahma-viharas, right? Goodwill, compassion, appreciation, and equanimity. Those are the four immeasurables, or the four Brahma-viharas. Um, the divine abodes. The perception of foulness of the body and the perception of inconstancy, so those are also um, important perceptions and reflections that he often recommends to people, depending on their mind type. I can see some reaction to the perception of the foulness of the body. Is that right? It's, um, yeah, it's for people who are really, really greed types and, you know, uh, are get stuck on the outward appearance of the body, it can, and then they it's hard for them to settle down in meditation because they're fantasizing and uh, thinking too much about the body. And so I think the understanding is that meditating on how the inside of the body is 
not that attractive <laughs> is um, helpful to people with that kind of mind to get them to settle down. It's not to hate the body. We don't usually do that one in this culture because we have so many other problems with uh, body hatred. It's not, not as relevant of a perception for us. Although for some. <laughs> yeah, so the, yeah, it's not to develop hate, it's to develop non-attachment. And then, the very last practice mentioned is mindfulness of breathing. It's very interesting. So, you know, right there. And then, that was like the whole setup. You know, he's like praising the monks for their fantastic progress over four months of practice. And they've been doing all these great practices that are really interesting and different. And the last one he lists is mindfulness of breathing. And then that becomes the transition to the, uh, quote, Mindfulness of in and out breathing, when developed and pursued, is of great fruit, of great benefit. Or in the book, um, when mindfulness of breathing is developed and cultivated, is a, it is of great food and great benefit. So then he's going to explain uh, how to develop, how to develop and cultivate mindfulness of breathing. We're supposed to have had our appetite wet at this point um, from all the all the earlier praise. But maybe I'll just say that um, one interpretation of, the, of a unifying theme through this sutta, and we've already seen part of it, is the theme of unity or unification. And in particular, he talks about the whole first section basically unifies that whole group of monks that are there. I mean, it, from the very first, you know, ordained four months ago <laughs> monk to people like Sariputta and Moggallana, who are arahants and long-time uh, disciples of the Buddha, he brings them all together and says what unites all of this is this sense of pure heartwood, of you know doing these great practices together and achieving uh, attainments of various kinds and practicing really well. So at least when I read that whole thing and praises their progress, you know I get a sense of he's just bringing everybody together. You know Everybody feels... Included and, and inspired at the end of it. So, and then that, that sets the stage that in the rest of the sutta he talks about how mindfulness of breathing, which is what he really wanted to highlight, is connected to many other practices that um, he teaches, many other important teachings. So, in particular, the four foundations of mindfulness and the seven factors of awakening are highlighted, and then knowledge of. Uh, Knowledge and deliverance, I think, is what it's called. So the um, the achieving of, of freedom at the end. Don't worry, we'll go over all of that. But there's kind of a sense of there's a, a unification and a, a an overall logic to what's being cultivated and brought forth, and it leads to these successive stages of attainment. Okay, so the next section elaborates on Anapanasati. And it talks about, um, in particular, 16... I don't know if you counted them. <laughs> um, does this one actually identi- Does that, this one actually have numbers? It might... Yes, it does. <laughs> so the, uh, the printed out, the Tanjef version, uh, has uh, numbers associated with each of the 16 steps. Um, Pikabodis does not have... 1 through 16 marked, but they're obvious. And in both of them, they're divided into four paragraphs where each uh, 
paragraph has four of the steps. So this is actually important. This wasn't just breaking it up because it was getting long. There are um, four tetrads, is what they're called, being described here. So each of the 16 steps comes in set four sets of four. And that's going to matter as we talk about it. So um, who would like to read? Let's see. We're not going to go through all 16 because I'm looking at the time. But um, if somebody could read the first two tetrads, that would be great. Would somebody like to do that? Heidi. So starting at verse 16 there? Yes, starting at... Yeah, that's fine. 16 is good. And how bhikkhus is mindfulness of breathing developed and cultivated? So that is, it is of great fruit and great benefit. Here a bhikkhu, gone to the forest or to the root of a tree or to an empty hut, sits down, having folded his legs crosswise, set his body erect and established mindfulness in front of him. Ever mindful, he breathes in. Mindful, he breathes out. Breathing in long, he understands. I breathe in long. And breathing out long, he understands. I breathe out long. Breathing in short, he understands. I breathe in short. Or breathing out short, he understands. I breathe out short. He trains thus. I shall breathe in, experiencing the whole body of breath. He trains thus. I shall breathe out, experiencing the whole body of breath. He trains thus, I shall breathe in, tranquilizing the bodily formation. He trains thus, I shall breathe out, tranquilizing the bodily formation. Actually, hang on, let's stop there. I know that was only the first tetrad, but there's, I realize there's several things to say. So, um, so just to reiterate, the four steps are understanding, I breathe in long and I breathe out long. That's the first one. Second one, understanding, I breathe in short, I breathe out short. Third, training, experiencing the whole body of breath, or according to um, Tan Jeff, sensitive to the entire body. Notice that's a little different, so we'll talk about that. And then fourth, to train to tranquilize the bodily formation, or calm the bodily formation. So this is four instructions. Um, of how to relate to the breath. And there are um, a few things to notice about it. So we're going to actually nitpick the language a little bit. The verbs are different for the first two and the second two. The first two are to understand or discern, according to Tanjef. Um, and then the second two are to train. Yeah, he trains himself or he trains thus. <coughs> So there's a slight difference, and the way I understand this is that at first we're sitting down and we're asked not to do anything, but to notice how it is. How is it right now? Um, You know, the the usual practice of when you first sit down on the cushion or you first turn your attention to a type of meditation, you don't just like plunge in and start doing things. You actually sit down and see where things are at in order, you know, you have to see uh, what the situation is before you start. When you arrive in the kitchen, you you will proceed differently if the dishes are all piled up in the sink or if the sink is clear. You know, there's like different conditions. Or if you look in the in the fridge and you don't have a certain ingredient, you'll proceed differently than if you do. You just have to see 
what is going on. So this long and short, how is the breath right now? And then there's and then we start to train. It doesn't say you have to do anything with it. You just notice how it is. And then there's um, training. So that's in and of itself interesting. There is an active directing of the mind. Um, I think we have to be careful. The word train doesn't mean that we, you know, get out the whip like we're training the horse and say, okay, you know, do it this way. Um, we could try that, but it won't work very well in the long run. Um, instead, we're you know, it can be light, more like steering, I would say, than directing, especially for those who have a tendency toward control. <laughs> but I'll add that that's how I see it, at least. I see it as, you know, but having some intention you know, there. It's not just, it's not just, it's not just sitting <laughs> like in Zen. Um, you know, there is actually something going on here that we're training the mind to do. Now, um, the, the translator here, Tanisaro Bhikkhu, he teaches actually a very active involvement with the breath. He says that, you, that training means that you um, propel the breath in certain directions through the body. And, um, and if your breathing is not very comfortable, you, can, you should actively change it to make it more comfortable, which is interesting. Not every teacher teaches that. Um, but he does, and it seems to work for him. So you can try it. Teaches that. Tan Jeff or Tanisaro Bhikkhu, the one who wrote, um, the one that's on Access to Insight. Um, yeah, he actually says you should feel how comfortable your breath is by noticing long, short, etc. It doesn't mean that long is always comfortable and short is always not. It's, that's not the case. But he says first, wow, we we're being exposed. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we'll stick that up <laughs> later. Um, so, yeah, so he actually says you should, you know, notice whether it's comfortable or uncomfortable and make it more comfortable. <laughs> so this is interesting. This relates more to the second tetrad where we're actually supposed to do that, but uh, which we haven't gotten to yet. But just be aware that there are some teachers who say very active, you know, to be very active there. I don't. I haven't tended to be as active. I think it's. Um, I think the. I think mindfulness will do that job without me needing to do it um, intentionally with my will. Then there's a one that there's some debate about the third one, uh, training now to experience the whole body, or to the whole body of breath in parentheses, or to be sensitive to the entire body. Uh, the the poly is a little unclear, um, according to scholars, in that it could mean the entire body of breath could mean like the breath as a whole occurrence. So it's like, and some so some teachers will teach this as you should be mindful from the very beginning of the in breath, through the end of the in breath, to the beginning of the out breath, to the end of the out breath, the whole duration of the breath. And we don't use the word body in this way in English, but you can kind of get it that that's a, a, a body of the breath. It's like a, the realm of the breath, the whole duration of the breath. So, and the, but then other people say that what it means is the entire breath through the body. So, you know, we tend to think of the breath being in the lungs or the nose. But really, um, when you tune into breath energy, especially since we have so many practices like that available to us, you know, prana or chi... It flows through the whole body, right? And so we can feel 
as we breathe in and out, we can even feel the energy flowing through our legs, through our head, our arms. So there's a sense of being sensitive to the whole body, which is the whole body is affected by breathing. So the way I see this is that you can either interpret this as wholeness in time or wholeness in space. And um, I think ideally it might be both. (laughs) I mean, there shouldn't be a moment of non-mindfulness, so the whole duration of the breath is important. But why limit where the breath is? Feel the breath completely everywhere that you can feel it. And sometimes we may only feel the breath. I mean, when the breath gets very subtle, sometimes in deep meditation, we only feel it in the nose. It's like it doesn't seem like there's any breath going in, but there's just this very slight feeling, and that's fine. Or other times we can feel it as something that's penetrating the whole body, maybe even the whole body is breathing in and out. It's really a a matter of perception, I think. So, So the... I would encourage you to explore what this third instruction means and what works for you in it over the next couple weeks. And then fourth, um, the fourth step of training to tranquilize the bodily formation. First of all, what is the bodily formation? That's usually understood. You know, why doesn't he just say the body? Well, the body is not entirely controllable, in case you didn't know. (laughs) Does anybody think it's entirely controllable? Um, The bodily formation is the part of the body that is affected by the mind. So if you have um, a broken wrist, you, you can affect how you relate to that pain, but there are aspects of that that are outside of what the mind can I think, what the mind can totally affect. Because the Buddha himself complained at the end of his life, he had back pain and he had you know, stiffness in his joints and there was stuff about his body that was uncomfortable. Presumably the Buddha could have done anything with his mind to change any part of his body that he could, but he couldn't prevent himself from having some physical pain. So to me that says that there's only some parts of the body that are affected by the mind. At the end, he did say that he had to go into jhana to escape the pain of his body, you know, suppressing uh, sensations of the body. So, for us, practically, this means that uh, we start to become aware that a lot of the experience of the body is actually affected by the state of the mind. So, Maggie described coming in and feeling rushed, and her breath was tight, and her body was probably a little agitated, this is related to your mind and also to what you were doing with your body. Of course, anytime you're running, you'll have more energy through the body. But also there's some effect from how you were running. Because um, we've all had times when we were maybe running joyfully, playing with our grandchildren, and it didn't feel quite the same as when we were dashing because we were late to something. So just understanding that the mind affects the body. And so in the fourth step, we, we work to have a peaceful relationship with the body. We actually aim to tranquilize any effects in the body that are coming because of the mind. Does that make sense? Yeah. And, it's, and again, it's an active practice. We deliberately try to calm the body. Now, we know that trying too hard doesn't work, so it's a, there's an art here. But if we just sit there and, you know, let anything happen, let the mind be whatever... Um, that's a different practice. Now, here we're instructed to be going through a set of 16 steps, and the fourth one is that we actively uh, try to smooth things out a bit. You can learn that you actually have that, that ability. 
which is kind of nice. I would hope that we had some ability to affect our experience through our meditative practice. Isn't that the point? Um, We soon learn that it's not really us doing it, but there is some effect. There is an effect through intention. And so we cultivate that. Are there any comments on that, or questions on that first four? I think there's something important about the intention. Mm-hmm. So the intention is, well, gee, why am I breathing? Well, I'm breathing to calm and inhaling to calm the bodily formations. Mm-hmm. And indeed I am, because at the end of an extended exhale hold, I'm really ready to breathe. Yeah. And then after my breath is full, well, I'm really ready to exhale. And... I'm exhaling to calm my bodily formation. And it's not just the physical body because it's the mental body and the the more subtle part of what creates the physical and mental body. Yeah, so already in this tetrad that's nominally only about the bodily formation, we are starting to work with the mind and that transfers in the other ones are about the mind, the other tetrads. So we're starting to tune into... We're also, t- I mean, it's also developing great mindfulness. It's like, what am I doing with my mind? Because <laughs> that is ultimately where the suffering or the freedom is. What am I doing with my mind? So we start with something fairly direct and easy to experience. How is my mind affecting my body right now? Um, yeah. And so we tune into that and we train to have it be more tranquil. guys want to try it? I thought we would do a guided meditation on um, on this first tetrad. Yeah, to start so you don't have to have it memorized. I'll, I'll be going through it. So settling in. Finding a posture that's relatively comfortable. I know we've been sitting for a while. If you've been on the floor, you're welcome to move around a bit or whatever. And just closing your eyes and relaxing the body. And tune in to how your breath is at this moment. First connect with it. Just be sure that you can feel it. However it is, is fine. If it's deep or if it's shallow, if it's long or if it's short, if it's coarse or subtle, it's all fine, fast or slow. There isn't some more spiritual breath. It's better than some other kind of breath. And as you allow the inhale and the exhale to happen naturally, Just allow your mind to notice if the in-breath is long or short. And if the out-breath is long or short. It is possible to have a long in-breath and a short out-breath, or the reverse. They don't have to match. 
And we're just checking it out. And if it changes while we're checking it out, that's fine too. As we've become familiar with how the breath is, we decide to get a little bit more intimate with this simple process that's occurring. We tune in just as it touches the nostrils coming in and gently follow it along through the expansion whether it's long or short. Staying with it as the inhale comes to an end, begins to turn into the exhale. Staying with it as the body releases and relaxes, as the breath naturally flows out. Even as it gets very soft, as it does when the end of the out-breath comes, we just hold the attention there, gently waiting for that next in-breath. Just following it along. Like the way the tool bit comes up against piece of wood being turned in a lathe. We're just touching the breath as it flows by. And as we offer this gentle touch and non-resistance to the breath, and begin to feel how it's flowing through our body. Is it really just in the chest and the belly and the nose? Maybe there's some sensation through the head, through the arms and legs. to the belly and the low back. We experience how the breath is a whole body process. All of our cells are being nourished by the flow of oxygen. And we're just present for that natural process. We might deliberately turn the attention to various parts of the body 
Just notice, how is the breath for this part? The shoulder, the foot. kidneys, the eyes. There may be some parts where we don't feel the breath. That's fine. The extent of the breath varies, so we just see where it is right now. deliberately notice how we're paying attention to the breath. And we bring some degree of softness to the mind, some degree of release in the body. As the breath touches an area, can the breath open it and relax it Especially on the out-breath, we intend for any latent tension to drain away. Deliberately accentuating any parts of the body that are calm. Appreciating the ease. intention is not to add any new tension, not to allow that influx of energy to tighten anything up, but we openly receive, relaxedly receive the in-breath. And on the out-breath, the intention is to let go of any lingering tension that's still there. So each cycle, not adding any new tension and releasing anything else that can go. tensions arise or pain arises 
we direct the breath to flow through it like wind finds its way through a house just gently softening any tendency towards solidity feelings that come up in the body attention soft so if there are solid areas or painful areas we're okay with that it's not a project to eliminate all the tension it's just to intend to be tranquil in the body even tranquil with some parts that might still be a little tight or new tightnesses that may come. tetrad really focuses on the body you know it's a little bit of the there needs to be some softness in the mind in order to uh, intend for the tranquility but it's really focused on the physical sensations of breathing and we'll get to this later in the sutta but the general understanding is that this tetrad is about corresponds to the first of the four foundations of mindfulness, which is the body. I keep referring to this term, foundation of mindfulness. This is referring to um, the other most common set of instructions that are offered in our tradition. And it's in the same book, it's uh, Sutta number 10, so Majjhima Nikaya 10. If you've never read the Satipatthana Sutta, you might take a look. It includes mindfulness of breathing, and it's actually put in the 
in the first foundation section, and these exact four instructions are what's given in the Satipatthana Sutta for uh, that that practice. But the Anapanasati Sutta goes on. It has 16 instructions, not just the first four. So it adds much more detail about what else can be done with the breath. It doesn't just leave it in the body. And that's what the other tetrads about. And as a little preview, there are four tetrads and there are four foundations of mindfulness and they correspond pretty much. So we'll be unpacking that as we go along. So this is the way that the breath begins as a body practice. It is, of course, a bodily process. Um, but if you follow it through all these 16 steps, you're going to go through all the, founda- all the mental foundations of mindfulness also, which is the complete mindfulness of our experience that leads to awakening. I once asked a teacher who was a very... Yeah, very long time advanced practitioner. He was a monk, and I asked him if um, mindfulness of the body was sufficient for liberation, and because it does say mindfulness of the breath is sufficient for liberation, and he said no, you must look at the mind. Mm-hmm. Um, he was very clear on that, <laughs> and so, um, but the Anapanasati Sutta is goes on and includes all those other ones. And in the same way, the Satipatthana Sutta starts with mindfulness of the body, but then it has the other foundation. So we, we are going to work with the mind. That is the, and that's where the suffering is, right? <laughs> really. But it's not, um, you know, it's not like just kindergarten practice to start with the body. This is the, like Heidi said, this is the home, the center um, of our experience, at least as we perceive it normally. We perceive our body to be the center of where we are. I would encourage you to hold that a little bit lightly, <laughs> but it's a great place <coughs> to start. And it's, um, yeah. Although I've also, um, just because suddenly the, the picture of putting the body in the center makes me think of like a person in the middle and then like the mind and, you know, other experiences sort of going out from it. But a, a classic picture I've seen also of the Anapanasati Sutta is that the body is on the outside. And then each tetrad takes you deeper and deeper in. So we can hold those images of in or out somewhat lightly. Or, you know, going up or going deep. <laughs> you know, some people like to... <laughs> whatever way you like is, uh, is fine. <laughs> so we're training. Um, you know, we're training the mind... But what are we training it to do? We're training it to perceive in certain ways. We're training it to relate to experience in certain ways. And we start with something real simple, the breath in the body, which we've been doing since the moment we were born, most probably, uh, whether we noticed it or not. It's kind of humbling, I think, to, to focus on the breath and feel like, wow, this is really different, this is really interesting, and think, how many decades have I been doing this many times per minute and had no awareness of it at all. And there's so much here and such a tool for calming the body. Um, Mindfulness of breathing is not confined to the cushion, although that's where these 16 steps really develop because we have fewer distractions. But you can be mindful of your breath while sitting at your desk or 
while eating or walking around. It's not as easy sometimes, but for some people it becomes very interesting and they want to do it all the time. So I'll just offer that as you might see if it works for you. And there's definitely a bias. I mean, we're not just training the mind to perceive any old thing. We're training it to have bodily and mental ease. That's nice. We're going to have a bias. That's a good one. But I think this sutta counteracts a little bit the idea that meditation is completely passive. It's all about pure equanimity. Uh, We just accept absolutely everything. Why? <laughs> you can calm. You can calm the mind, calm the body, um, and that's okay. Now, like any, the mind can get attached to anything. So we could make it into a project. That's why I said at the very end of the guided meditation. You know, this is not a project to eliminate all tension in the body. I know what your minds do. It's like the instruction: <laughs> find ease in the body. Okay, where's the tension? You relax. <laughs> Where's the next one? (laughs) You're out of here. Exactly. Have I achieved it yet? Is my body completely relaxed yet? Oh, I have a lot of laughter here. So, (laughs) am I done yet? (laughs) So, you know, this is all the mind, though, right? And and it's not a it's not a uniform process. It's not like you start out tense. We do tend to start out tense, but it's not like it's like a linear, uniform, next week I'm going to have less, next week even less, and so forth, and pretty soon my body's just going to be calm on tranquil all the time. Um, it's really a, a little different than that. But if we have a skill or an intention of wanting to find ease and peace and relaxation in the body, that can carry over, that can help us. I, I would say that for me, I started out a very tense person. I was anxious and worked up and um, etc and it was so useful for me to actually have um, a couple of years where my, I mean I did something on the cushion but my daily life practice was to try to not be tense <laughs> where I, in, in whatever position I was in so it's actually part of the foundations of mindfulness it's mindfulness of posture but I found that, I mean simple things like sitting at the table and eating um, my arms would be kind of subtly pushing against the edge of the table in a way that was not necessary. Or I'd be sitting in a chair and I'd be kind of pulling myself up um, and it's in a way that was not necessary, and as if the seat were cold or something, but it wasn't cold. And so I, I've gradually learned that it was okay to be in contact with surfaces <laughs> and have some ease about that. And that's it's sort of a real-world, you know, daily life equivalent of this fourth instruction is, you know, can you just relax a little bit? And we know that it's not, um, it's not going to be uniform because stuff comes up in our practice, right? So some later stage of our practice, some memory is going to be coming and there's going to be a huge amount of tension. But if we have a skill where we know how to work with that, um, that'll be fine and we can be with it and learn something from it. Okay, so... We have a little bit more time, and so I wanted to just introduce the second tetrad. And I also wanted to say that um, I realized, I kind of naively, I know two hours is about the right time for one of these sessions, having done them before, but I realized that in this new location with the two-hour parking, that can be a little bit awkward. So um, 
We're supposed to go till 8.30, but I might try to end a little bit before that so that we're not pushing. Anybody who's parked out there is not pushing it, which includes my car. <laughs> but, um, I, yeah. Okay, so the second tetrad, instructions 5 through 8, would somebody like to read those? Inani, would you like to? Yeah. So, five. He trains himself. I will breathe in sensitive to rapture. He trains himself. I will breathe out sensitive to rapture. He trains himself. I will breathe in sensitive to pleasure. He trains himself. I will breathe out sensitive to pleasure. He trains himself. I will breathe in sensitive to mental fabrication. He trains himself. I will breathe out sensitive to mental fabrication. He trains himself. I will breathe in calming mental fabrication. He trains himself. I will breathe out calming mental fabrication. Great, thank you. I know there's some um, a little bit technical terminology in there if you're not familiar with reading suttas. Um, so just mental fabrication, I realize now it also says bodily fabrication in the prior one. That's the same as bodily formation or mental formation. That's what Bhikkhu Bodhi calls it. And then um, these terms rapture and pleasure these are also specific words um, that are used uh, often in concentration meditation Uh, the first one is PT and the second one is sukha and they translate to feelings of joy or rapture is the first one Um, rapture and joy and kind of it's kind of an effervescent um happiness in the mind, usually. And then, it's, it's actually mostly mental is what it's said to be. And then this term pleasure is, interestingly, goes back to being more in the body, usually how it's described. And it's a little calmer. It's like the difference between being excited and being happy. You know, you can sort of feel those different levels of excitement. One is a little bit more exuberant than the other. And so interestingly... We'll just start with those first two. You're supposed to tune into the good stuff <laughs> in this. It doesn't say just sit there and feel the breath and note how it is and if it's pleasant, if it's unpleasant. It actually says highlight the pleasant part. Highlight any feelings of mental joy that are coming from what? Tranquility in the body and from the beginning of concentration that you're starting to have. So that instruction number three, where you're either sensitive for all of time or all of space for the breath, um, that is developing continuity of mindfulness, right? And when the mind is continuously mindfulness, mindful in the present moment, it's developing stability and concentration, the beginnings of concentration. You don't have to, we're not getting into the jhanas necessarily, but this is just, you know, some mental stability, and that is very pleasant, actually. 
what is difficult for the mind is to be bouncing all over the place and remembering the past and anticipating the future and fantasizing and all of that is actually somewhat stressful for the mind. And when it's, it has a nice, simple, luckily changing object that's just, and it's just resting on that, it actually feels really good. And the mind is like, oh, thank goodness, there's um, somewhere to kind of land and uh, just have this ongoing awareness. And so this is a natural process. It's um, very natural that the mind would feel some joy starting to come from that. And so this um, instruction says, notice that. It says, actually notice that. And Maggie probably knows this is the same instruction in concentration, is that you, you, know, you aren't just neutral about what's happening, you actually are tuning in to the pleasant part, because that's important for the mind to have that, um, that internal feeling of joy. This is joy that is coming from inside, from your own practice. It's not coming from receiving a gift or some kind of sensual pleasure, uh, which is also a form of joy, but this is, you'll discover, is a little better, <laughs> actually. And so um, so this is pointing out of that mindfulness of breathing includes tranquility uh, instructions, includes concentration instructions. Later it also includes insight, wisdom instructions. But part of the beginning part of developing mindfulness of breathing is, is leading toward concentration on the breath. Similar instructions. Are there any comments on that? Yeah. Well, it begins to sound like one of the instructions for uh, jhanas. Yeah. But it also seems to begin in parallel with the fourth the second foundation of mindfulness. Yeah, this is about the second foundation of mindfulness. Is, is that more what it's about than jhana practice? Well, you're not necessarily intending to, re- to get into jhana. Um, jhana can arise from... Uh, let me be careful. I Tranquility and insight are kind of wound together in this sutta. They're not distinguished. Um, and... Yeah, the the people who claim that there's tranquility meditation and there's insight meditation and never the twain shall meet um, will find this sutta challenging to that idea. <laughs> they really develop together. Uh, for the first three tetrads are about both um, tranquility and insight. The fourth is only insight, actually. So that's why it leads to liberation. You drop the tranquility part. But it's important, I think, um, in order to really see as clearly as you need to see in the fourth tetrad, you've got to have a stable mind. And so there have to be woven in instructions for concentrating the mind. And if you do breath meditation following these instructions or following your intuition through it, you will get concentrated. I mean, there's, not, there's no way not to. It's, this is not... Um, even though it's a moving object, and, and this is then going to go against the people who say there's the moving objects with Kanaka Samadhi and there's the one-pointed objects of, you know, Ikagata, one-pointed meditation, they'll have trouble with this sutta because <laughs> the breath is a moving, changing object, it's not a single object, but, I mean, it's not a single thing, but uh, what you develop is one-pointed concentration on the experience of breathing. So you are not developing what's called kanaka samadhi, or momentary concentration, which is what you develop in open awareness, 
where uh, the mind allows any experience to come in. You are, you're not paying attention to the sounds. You're not paying attention to your memories. Um, you're paying attention to the breath. It is really limiting the experience. Um, but it's a changing experience. So, I like this sutta because it breaks down boundaries. <laughs> well, I also think it gives you choices. I mean, in my practice, what I found is that to some extent depends on what you focus. If you focus on to the movement of the breath, it tends to move more towards the momentary awareness. But if you uh, focus on the point of contact with the breath, it tends to move more into the fixed jhana type yes. awareness. Jhana based on the breath does, you have to choose a point. Usually they choose the, the upper lip, um, nostrils or the upper lip. So certainly, and if you, uh, but I would, I would question whether you're only doing kanaka samadhi or momentary concentration if you're focusing on the movement of the breath, because you are excluding. You're excluding everything that's not the breath. Mm-hmm. Open awareness of kanaka samadhi is intended to allow actually every experience, so that you drop any <coughs> preference for what you're experiencing. It's a very advanced practice, actually, even though some people like to start right out with it. Um, so it's, it's kind of in between. But you're right that there are different ways to focus on the breath, and in this sutta it, it, does, not, it does not aim toward the jhana method because of, of the third instruction of the whole body of the breath. I guess you could, if you were interpreting it only in time, you could say it's this point for the whole duration of the breath, and that would be well, a lot I'm like... I'm not sure it's just in yeah. time. I mean, if you fix it in space, too, I mean, you see the parallel, like, in the first tetrad where they're talking about um, getting awareness of the body, of uh, the breath through the whole body, if you interpret it as the whole body in space. And then, uh, which is kind of parallel to what you see in Jonas when they talk about moving... The, the awareness of piti and sukha uh, throughout the whole body mm-hmm. and, and going into the first jhana. So yes. You know, the thing. I think that would be like the fourth instruction of tranquilizing the bodily formation is that you spread the good feeling throughout the whole body. Yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of interesting parallels. I love this. And feel, by the <laughs> way, feel free to bring in other ideas. Um, Kim, could you say a little yeah. bit more about what is meant about I shall breathe in or breathe out, tranquilizing the mental formation? Yeah, okay, so let's go on to instructions 7 and 8, which we haven't talked about yet. So, sensitive to the mental formation or fabrication, and then um, calming or tranquilizing the mental formation or fabrication. So that, now we've turned our attention to the mind, um, the body... Uh, is at whatever state of ease it is. And then we um, we notice whether or not the mind is a little bit um, slightly agitated, slightly excited. Like, for example, one issue we can have with when PT and Sukha start to develop is we go, wow, this is so cool! <laughs> you, know? And, you know, we get over that fairly soon, but that, that would be a mind that's not tranquil, right? And so there's... Um, there's a, a sense of including the observing mind in with the breath that's being observed. So this is starting to increase the inclusiveness of what we're looking at. And it is possible to you know, be intending to calm the body and have some degree of that going on, but with a mind that's doing so out of striving, that's doing so out of um, l- liking the feeling of ease too much, like getting attached to it, or of um, disliking 
um, every other experience, like I'm going to just power in and focus on the breath because I hate the whole rest of the world. I mean, I'm exaggerating a little bit, but there can be attitudes in the mind. And this is also referring, so that's one, is kind of the attitude of the mind. And then another one is um, the degree, the mind is, is not totally uh, fixed one-pointed at, at this point. We're not doing the one-pointed jhana, we're not in jhana. So the mind can have memories and uh, planning and other things still coming up, and then you know we realize that we're off and we get back to the breath. It's not, you know, this is still happening <laughs> at this uh, stage. You know, for a long time. And so calming the mental formation is calming the degree to which the mind goes off. Um, you know, when, how quick does it return? And this is natural. We notice over time we, we fall off a little bit less often or we get back a little bit sooner. Either one can happen. Um, so this is referring to that for the mind's tendency to not stay with the object. So we're developing concentration, actually. But calming it, we can, you know, we can actually tune in to what mental ease feels like. We know the difference in our own, and this is nothing mystical or subtle. We know in our own experience that there are some times when we're doing things, and if somebody said, how are you? How are you feeling? Are you calm or not calm? We'd say, oh, you know, I feel pretty calm. Things are going fine, even if we're doing some daily activity. And other times we're doing it, and we're not that calm. And so there's, um, there's something, you know, something happening in the mind. So this one, you know, the second foundation of mindfulness is mindfulness of feeling tone. And this one is not a total obvious parallel in that, you know, feeling tone is very simple. It's pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. And we develop mindfulness of noticing whether things are pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. And in the Satipatthana Sutta, that's all we do. We just notice that. In this sutta, we are supposed to notice how something is, the, the, the feeling tone of it, and we go for the pleasant. Um, we go for the pleasant bodily sensations, we go for the pleasant mental sensations, um, you know, not because we're pushing away the others or denying the others, but we just emphasize. So even if the mind is primarily, and we can have experiences of meditating on the breath where something unpleasant comes up, you know, we've got a memory coming, we've got fear coming, we don't even know why, or we've got anger coming up that that day. Even so, we can do this meditation, if it's not too strong, by just highlighting any degree of ease that's there. Like, even if there's anger, there can still be ease in the mind because we're noticing the anger, for example. Mindfulness is actually often kind of easeful. So we find any my teacher would say, some modicum of ease. <laughs> some modicum of ease in the body or mind or modicum. Um, and, we, and we emphasize that. Um, it's, again, an art, because we don't want to push away or deny stuff that doesn't fit that or grab on to that part. And, but just, just artfully emphasize, highlight, you know, nourish this one and not so much this one. And so we'll learn, as we do with this practice for ourselves, how to do that uh, without, and we will get off, um, but how to do that without um, falling into attachment or aversion. I think often when we're um, talking about this, we we talk a lot about uh, noticing tension Mm -hmm. and discomfort in the body, and we forget to notice 
parts of the body that are comfortable, that are... Exactly, because we, we go for that, yeah. Yeah. So this is a little bit, I guess, in the fourth instruction, we're tranquilizing the body formation. So we do have to notice where the tension is and try to relax that. And then this says, when you've done enough of that, focus on the pleasant. Focus on the, the ease that has been brought, whatever degree of it. It doesn't have to be perfect. Um, but you just begin to allow that into your awareness. Oh, this is easeful. This is peaceful. And, and you can actually enjoy it. You're supposed to enjoy it and really soak your body in it even. Um, like Jim was saying, this are, you know, these are like the tranquility instructions is saturate the whole bodily formation and then also the mind. This is encouraging us, by the way, to develop a, noticing the difference between what's the body and what's the mind experiences can be bodily or mental. And they're often, when we start practicing, they're all mixed up together. We have no idea what's the body and what's the mind. And then if we've sat for a while, we're very clear. It becomes much clearer. And that's actually one of the first stages of insight, is to know what is the body and what is the mind. Usually it's what is a bodily feeling and what is our reaction to it. Those are That's how we see the distinction. And it's huge to know that there's a difference between a bodily experience and and our reaction to it. That's actually much bigger than we think. Um, Because a lot of people don't know that. And in this one, we even get the wonderful instruction that we're going to focus on the ones that are pleasant. And this isn't just, you know, rampant cultivation of pleasant sensation, however, in that the mental ease that's talked about in the eighth step is what's called in the Satipatthana Sutta unworldly pleasant sensation or spiritual pleasant sensation. Um, if you've read the sutta, the mindfulness of feeling tone says that you should first notice whether whether your experience is pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral, just at a top level. And then it says you should start to distinguish whether what you're feeling is what's called a um, worldly, or sometimes it's called carnal, <laughs> pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral, or whether you're experiencing unworldly or spiritual pleasant feelings. And those are different. Uh, they have an ethical quality to them. And, you know, the ones... And so, you know, the classic example is that the bodily pleasure is, you know, a pleasant food that we eat, for example. And it's not like there's something wrong with that. Please eat pleasant food. And that is an experience we can have but uh, compare that to the pleasure of generosity or of loving kindness or of compassion. Clearly, the second is a much deeper, more um, reliable kind of pleasure um, and also more fruitful for our path, right? More long-lasting because if we give something or if we act with kindness, that stays in our mind stream in a way that the chocolate cake is done. <laughs> you know, It's just gone. We can see the different level. And so we're cultivating in this pleasure, we're actually cultivating unworldly pleasure. And it, it eventually trains the mind that that's better than the sense pleasure. So training in jhana, pra- training in tranquility, training in this kind of breath meditation actually has the effect, whether you intend it or not, of reducing your attachment to sense pleasure. What a great way to do it. I mean, we always think reducing my attachment to sin pleasure. I have to renounce and give everything up and buckle down and figure out how to live without this. No, oh, just cultivate <laughs> cultivate tranquility of mind. It'll happen naturally. <laughs> it's a way. <laughs> so, are there any other questions or comments on this? 
Yeah. <laughs> very new to this. So, uh, yeah. is this to be cultivated and practiced in successive order? And coming, coming to sit, noticing if it's a short in breath, um, and then going, going through. Okay, so that's actually that's actually a very advanced question. <laughs> but at a at a basic level, um, yes, these are intended to be sequential. Um, there are you're right. There are lists like the Eightfold Path, for example, that is not totally sequential. You can kind of start anywhere, and you'll eventually get everything. But this list is intended to it's doing something. So, yeah, when you sit down, notice first. You know, understand is my breath long or short? In breath long, in breath short. Out breath long, out breath short, and then you know, then uh, intend to feel the whole breath either in time or through the body, and then tranquilize, and then start noticing if there's ease coming from that. And the the speed at which all of this happens is something to be determined in your in your practice. You may, while deliberately cultivating this, which I would encourage you to do over the next two weeks before our next class. We're just going to work with the first and second tetrads uh, for these two weeks. Um, you may wish to try to get through all eight steps in the time that you meditate. And so you don't have to like divide it up evenly and say two minutes on this, two minutes on this. Um, but just you know, aim to go through that sequence. Um, but I'm also encouraging you, if you want, to be kind of... Um, intuitive about it and you know, like maybe you sit down and the long and the short you do for a few minutes and then and then you get really interested in the calming of the bodily formation and you end up just doing that the whole time you know it's like that was what was really up for you and you never and then you get to the end and you realize oh i never noticed the ease in my mind and i never went on to the second tetrad oh well you know that's okay or other times you get through the whole eight in the first 10 minutes start over, <laughs> you know. Um, I mean, normally you might go on to the other ones, but, you know, if you, you never know what will happen. So, But these are intended to be in order, to the short answer to your question. Yeah. yeah. I was wondering about the organization of one and two. I always think of um, the calmer I am, the longer my breaths are. And so I'm surprised that the... It's first. The first one calls for noticing breathing in long, mm-hmm. and the second one calls for noticing breathing in short. Mm, that's and a good I'm wondering point. Wondering why yeah. you think it's that way. Well, um, first of all, since the first two are the instruction is only to understand or discern. Mm-hmm. Um, we don't need to worry about which one it is. I think they kind of go together. They're kind of just notice. Just yeah. simultaneous, whatever's happening. Whatever's happening, we that. should notice that. Notice yeah. That. Okay. We don't need to do, we don't try to make it long and, or make it short, mm-hmm. um, which I know you weren't saying necessarily, but I'll just say that for people in general. And then the other thing I would say is don't assume that a long breath is easeful and a short breath is not. Um, that that may be true in daily life. Uh, I think that kind of the normal everyday breath, that's probably true. But I found in meditation that um, when concentration gets fairly deep, the breath actually gets very, very light and fairly short. Um, there, It goes through different stages, and then it may be long again later. So I think the first two, maybe it's even put out of, quote-unquote, out of order so that you won't be able to make that assumption. Yes. Thank you. <laughs> um, yeah, I've found that long and short can happen at any time in in the sequence of concentration. Yeah. Aggie. 
in fact, when they have people on ventilators, it's like seven medium to short breaths followed by one long one. That's right. They, they change what it. people do. They oh, vary it. Yeah. 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 So I think, yeah, you don't need to, just, that's why it says just notice. Where are we <laughs> in this pattern? What is my breath doing exactly? How are we doing here? Okay, so um, so for homework, um, please read the entire sutta of MN118. We just read the first two sections for today. There's a couple more, two or three more sections, depending how it's divided up. So when you come next time, make sure you've read the entire sutta. And, um, and if I didn't get your email address, make sure I have it by the end, so I'll be able to send that to you guys. I know... Most, many of you already signed up. Um, and then practice, if you're so inclined, practice Sanapanasati with the first two tetrads. <coughs> and see how it goes. And you will have an opportunity next time to talk about that. If you have any questions come up or anything. And we'll uh, do some guided meditations on the later tetrads. Oh, um, we're into logistics, so I'm going to turn the recording off. That's basically the end of the first class. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.